So good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. First Sunday in January 2018. Looked out, or looked at the, I think Matt and Kim when they lived in the apartment set up a thermostat or a thermometer inside. Looked out and it was zero. So good number. It was a good Zen number. Uh, so, uh, after this, we'll have a song meeting, whoever can stick around. Um, been thinking, uh, on New Year's Eve, I just did a brief little uh, talk in the Zendo, but I'm afraid I didn't come across quite clearly. Um, and um, so, um, I want to just say something about that, um, and then get into, uh, today, into the three turnings of the wheel of Buddhism. Uh, for those who are familiar, um, good, and uh, for those who aren't better, um, uh, really. Uh, But I want to start with a quote by uh, Rousseau, the famous uh, 18th century philosopher Rousseau. I've been reading some of him lately, given our political situation that we're in, very famous uh, philosopher that really inspired the French Revolution and the American Revolution, if, you, if you've never read any of his stuff, it's quite inspiring. He said, the world of reality has limits. The world of imagination is boundless. And I thought that was quite nice. Um, it's important uh, beginning this new year to reimagine our practice. To use your sense of imagination to reimagine yourself to not get stuck in fixed ways of thinking. And to always know that actually any time of year, it doesn't have to be New Year's, but any time of year, we always have the capacity to reinvent ourselves. Um, There's an old Japanese saying, seven times down, eight times up. You know, okay, start over, brush off, start over. Um, No problem. It's only when our uh, old way of thinking really um, bogs us down that we believe that we can't change. And so really to not to take that lightly. Of course, we have old baggage, we have old habits, we have things that we're working on. But the great uh, teaching of Zen is that ultimately that's all empty. It's all empty. Um, and emptiness does not mean... Um, it, emptiness is not a thing. Emptiness is just this. It's pure potential, really. That all things are rising out of this pure emptiness. So, yeah, yeah. So, in a sense, we're boundless, really. We're boundless, and yet, at the same time, this boundlessness is being manifested through each one of us and looking out through each one of our eyes. This boundlessness is manifesting through each personality, each candle, Buddha figure, wood stove, 
bell. And so part of the reason we suffer so much is because we don't imagine. We don't allow ourselves to get kicked out of our uh, sort of trough that we've worn very deep, the grooves in our life that we've worn so deeply that we can't imagine anything differently. And so we believe that this is how things have to be. And so please um, see through that. Otherwise we get stuck. But to say that, of course, all of the Zen masters got stuck, that's, that's kind of actually a good thing because it's only when we're really stuck that we have the potential to break through that because we're at the end of our, at the end of our rope in a sense. So, um, part of the reason, the part of the way we get stuck is in our dull, unimagined thinking. And if you looked closely, I was saying this the other night to somebody, if you look really closely, I believe you'll find that you don't think about much. You think about the same stuff over and over again. And they're kind of just boring circles. And they might take on different clothes, so to speak, but they're really not that interesting. And, 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 so, and so we believe these thought patterns so deeply. Um, and uh, the, really the essence of Buddhist teaching is to, uh, to see through them, to say, look, this is dull. This is uninteresting. Uh, how long do you want to keep doing this in your life? And that's mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice is watching, becoming familiar, noticing these patterns, and then saying, no, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to look at the, even the chain of causation, what leads to this, this leads to that, and then all of a sudden I'm doing the same thing again. I'm thinking the same things again. Part of the things, that, part of what we do is we try to make things permanent, don't we? We believe in the permanence of our thinking, the permanence of us, the permanence of others. And, um, um, and then when the reason we suffer is because things are impermanent, things change. We don't get what we want. And so that's when we begin to really suffer. A, a teacher of mine in the depth of Sishin would stand up, 60 people sitting in silence. Stand up. He did this a couple of times over maybe 10 years. You don't always get what you want. You don't always get what you want. You try sometime. But you, yeah, thank you. So the Buddha recognized that Suffering does not, is not alleviated through knowing. It's not alleviated through getting more knowledge. In fact, I think, uh, who knows, he probably would, I don't know what he would say, but um, I imagine he would agree with me uh, <laughs> uh, if, if, if I said that we know, the reason we suffer is because we know too much. We know too much. And... Um, it, and so, so the Buddha 
kindly laid out this path to see through what we know into something deeper that has nothing to do with knowing. Um, as I was thinking about the importance of imagination in practice, it really struck me that that Buddhism itself is a, is a model for what we can do in our individual life. The path that Buddhism has taken historically is a wonderful model for us. Um, in fact, Buddhism, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe other religions have done this, um, if you can call Buddhism religion. We were talking about that last night. Um, but uh, Buddhism has been likened to be like a vessel, and it, and it takes on the particularities of any culture that it enters, and it really doesn't attach itself too much to form. Um, but more than that, more than just an, um, an empty vessel that takes on the form of the particular cultures and sensibilities of where it comes to, actually the vessel itself is moldable. The vessel itself is not fixed. There's nothing fixed in Buddhism. And historically, you can see that through the three turnings of the wheel. The turnings of the wheel mean the, you know, the wheel of life and death. That's in, it's a central image in Buddhism is this wheel. And the, the, the teachings are in Tibetan Buddhism are often on a wheel the sutras are written on this like three-dimensional prayer wheel and you spin it and this and and it's said that when you do that um, it it turns the teachings and spreads them out um, so you hear this Im you hear this uh, the turning of the wheel in, in, in Buddhism and it's gone through these th which are really major trans transformations that Buddhism has gone through that's really what they are referring to um, and so it's evolved. It's evolved. The early teachings of the, of the Buddha, the first turning of the wheel, so to speak, um, is the early teachings of the, of the Pali Canon, the uh, sutras, the suttas of the Pali Canon. And they are the basics that every, everybody here has heard about. The Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, the Three Characteristics of Existence, um, the five skandhas. These early sutras really lay out um, this practice um, that the Buddha gave at Deer Park when he was alive. And this first turning, um, you could say, is a kind of akin to, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here, I'll probably get slaughtered for this, uh, but it's it's kind of akin to psychological work. The Buddha laid out, this is why you suffer. You suffer because of your attachments and, and, and to your attachment to self. And the way through that is really to let go of self continually and to let go of your attachments continually. And here's how to do it. Here's a method. So it's, it's really working on this relative self of mine in a way. And it... Um, you could actually say that it, it's it's me centered in a strange way. It's it's uh, it's about my individual suffering. This first turning, um, looking at how the idea of self gets continually perpetuated 
and um, seeing the emptiness of self through very careful, almost logical uh, deconstruction of the self-notion. If you look, the Buddha would say, you know, it's not this, it is not that. It is neither this, it is neither that. So he would very logically dismantle your ideas of self and lead you into, very gradually, very logically into, oh, whoa, there's nothing there. And so it's, um, in a way, very relative. And what he taught was that this world of suffering he called uh, samsara, that there's a way out, and he called that nirvana. Uh, When you jump off the wheel of suffering, you are going from samsara to nirvana, okay? Now, so, so that's sort of the, the, the uh, a very quick cursory kind of uh, explanation of the first turning of the wheel of dharma. But then, you know what happened was that um, some of the uh, later Indian masters, especially Nagarjuna, he, they looked at this teaching and said, yeah, of course, it's what it is, is it's very incredibly profound. But there's something, there's something um, uh, else that's going on here. Because inherent in those early teachings is dualistic thinking. Because there's samsara and there's nirvana. There's this place and then there's another place to get to. You know, I have to get off of the wheel of suffering. So what's here is not good enough. My mind, my thoughts, my that that must be left behind. And so these later masters, you know, I think there was a sort of freedom when the Buddha died, to 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 uh, really extrapolate further what he was teaching, to um, really dive into it further. Even though, of course, in if you read the sutras, that a lot of these later second and third turning teachings are attributed to the Buddha. They're actually really. Um, came after he died. Just kind of like in the Bible where it says Jesus said this and Jesus said that, we really don't know what Jesus said. Uh, somebody, some, uh, you know, it's thought that maybe even just 10% of what is attributed to Jesus was actually said by him. So this second turning of the wheel was a recognition that samsara, nirvana, here and there are just concepts. They're just another idea that you have. And like all concepts, they're empty. Nagarjuna recognized that not only is the self empty, but all things are empty, including the emptiness of emptiness. That too, emptiness is just an idea. So it's his teaching, which I really recommend diving into, is very profound because it takes, it takes everything away. Nowhere to stand. The second turning teachings are really rooted, though, in compassion. 
This is another thing that was uh, brought to uh, light more clearly, is rooting this teaching in compassion for others. And the first turning, as I alluded to, was more about me, my personal suffering, seeing through my suffering. But the Mahayana teaching, which Zen is a school part of, um, really puts others in the picture. And so the second turning of emptiness really includes others in compassion. And so the question becomes is why, how is it rooted in compassion if all things are empty? How is it that compassion arises out of emptiness? One teacher that I work with uh, said that when one sees into the emptiness of all existence, it's so profound that compassion naturally arises. It's such a life-changing experience that compassion naturally comes forth. Because when we see through the illusion of a separate self, through the illusion of things having independent nature, then that is replaced, of course, with the reality that all things are one body. Not a single thing is apart from anything else. And so really the root of uh, the word compassion, compassion, to suffer with. If you are all things, how could you not suffer with? And this teaching is really outlined in one of the chants that we did today, the Prajnaparamita. So um, another wonderful long sutra to read, although we do a condensed version, the heart of it, the, the nub of the Prajnaparamita Sutta. Another way of seeing this emptiness and this compassion is that when it's seen into, that it's so humbling that individual self-centeredness comes to an end. And really what's left is caring. That's what's left. How could you not care for, for all things? So one way to distinguish the first wheel, turning of the wheel from the second turning is um, you could say that while the first turning uh, of the Buddhist teachings emphasize that all things are impermanent, changing, completely interdependent, you know, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, interbeing, that when one thing ceases to exist, the other ceases to exist, that this interbeing is the first... Uh, is the emphasis in the first turning. The second turning is not only that there's um, not permanence and independence of things, that there's nothing permanent and nothing independent, but also that, um, that 
things themselves are an illusion. So it's not that things are dependent on each other, it's that there are no things. So, on to the third turning. People following, by the way, this is a lot to take in. Okay. But I thought, you know, it's the first Teshu of the year, so let's, you know, dig in here. <laughs> Why not? Uh, the third turning of the wheel happened even later. And again, mythically, it's attributed to the Buddha. So if you read the sutras, the Buddha gave these teachings. But really, it comes out of early Chinese Buddhism. And it has to do with introducing the concept of Buddha nature, or true nature, as we talk about in Zen, which basically reorients us out of the world of emptiness and back into the world of things. You know, because there's a real, like the masters recognize that there's a real danger in getting stuck in emptiness. You see this when people have a profound experience in Sishin, a breakthrough, so to speak, or what we call a Kensho, or some sort of light penetration into this, that it's so enticing. Oh, yeah, enough, there's nothing. Free. But then it's like, well, how does that function in the world? How does it, how, you know, what are you going to do with that? And some people really hide out in that. They get stuck. I'm done. We're due. Nothing to get. Nowhere to go with practice. And ultimately, that's true. Uh, you could say that is true. And yet, and yet, what, how is that going to work in your life for you? And so the masters really saw, oh, no. So in the Prajnaparamita Sutra, it says, form is emptiness, right? Form is emptiness. But the third turning is emptiness is form. It doesn't stop at form is emptiness. It says emptiness is form. So the second turning teachings of emptiness as realization is incomplete. Um, it's incomplete as far as a path or a practice. The third, the third wheel teach, uh, teachings bring that back to uh, clocks and bells and people and feelings and thoughts and that each individual, each form, each sensation, car, person, computer, is whole and complete just as it is. <coughs> Perfect revealing everything in its particularity. That we live in the world of tears and aspirations and longings. And that is okay. The expression of emptiness is through multiplicity. Emptiness is not blankness. And so the reason that these three turnings are important to my mind is that it gives us a path to practice. It gives us a, it kind of gives us a compass for our journey. 
some some of the some Buddhist groups and some uh, traditions really plant themselves in the first turning, you know, working very relatively to see through suffering, to practice mindfulness, to um, embody, uh, you know, um, uh, realization of impermanence, and, and, and they sort of stay there. And I, I would say that this is an incomplete path. This is, this is fine. And some people say, that's all I want from Buddhist practice. Of course, that's fine. But it's not the whole thing. It's not the whole thing. And others, other, other places, people, they really get into philosophizing about emptiness. Uh, you know, because it sounds so enticing. It sounds so strange. It sounds so, you know, philosophers just love it. And, uh, and so that's also uh, a danger because then you get caught into this, um, into this world of thinking. Um, but our Zen tradition is different. Our Zen tradition is a little different in that it says... Um, we start with this clear path of seeing through suffering, the Four Noble Truths, getting clear on the Eightfold Path, how to work with our minds in a limited fashion, you know, noticing thoughts, returning to the practice, um, seeing how we're carried away in daydreams and how that impacts others and ourselves and how we're not present, you know, concentrating, centering, calming ourselves. That's all the first turning. Um, and so the, that's a, that, not to discount that, you know, uh, I was just talking to somebody this morning about Reiki and um, somebody else the other day about uh, working through the 12-step program. And, and so all of these are included in this relative way of working on ourselves. But once that landscape of the mind is, is, is really understood in a thorough way, this is what my mind does. I get it. I've seen it enough. I'm not getting caught as much in these patterns of habitual thinking that, that we move out of that. We move not away from it, but we move um, to this practice of shikantaza or just sitting or koan practice of deep inquiry into who we really are beyond the relative side of things. Uh, and, and then again, um, for a lot of traditions, this would be the resting point. And the image is, you know, you, you, you get to the top of the mountain. You're up there. You see clearly. Um, and... And it's a wonderful place to be. But Zen kicks our butt again and says, no, don't stop. You have to go, keep going. Go to, come back down the mountain. You know, make this teaching function in your life. Help others. Make it work. And so Zen training is long because that's what it takes for most of us. There's an old phrase in Zen that says, before practice, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. After Kensho, or seeing into this true nature, mountains cease to be mountains and rivers cease to be rivers. And then after, mountains are once again mountains and rivers are once again rivers. 
In other words, in Zen, we, yeah, we have to see the nature of suffering in a conceptual, intellectual way. We, we see the relative aspects of things. But Zen really teaches us that fundamentally there's no self to work on. And we have to see that too. But also beyond that, to acknowledge that although that is true, that we don't want to get stuck in there. So coming back to the beginning then, we really reorient ourselves back to the first turning, helping others however we can, whatever it takes, whatever tools in our tool bag, we help ourselves and we help others. Not static. We don't become static in practice. Some people are even pointing to the, the condition of the world that we find ourselves in as the fourth turning. How Buddhism will adapt to the environmental crisis that we're in, that we've never seen on, you know, in the history of human existence. That Buddhism has to change and flow and be able to meet this, the fact that we could destroy ourselves and the planet. Uh, so we can't get stuck in the forms, rituals, the way practice is in our own life. We can't get stuck there. We have to make it work. 